Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Avery, your host. Today, the heroes and villains behind the Bayless trial. Blood libel, or the myth that Jews murder Christian children and use their blood to make Passover matzah, is a myth that used to rear its ugly head with frightening regularity. The most famous case of this is probably the Bayless trial of 1913. Mendel Bayless, a barely observant Jew, worked in a brick factory in the slums of Kiev. In 1911, he was accused of murdering Andrei Yushinsky, a poor 13-year-old boy. From the start, ritual murder served as an excuse to pin the crime on a Jew, despite huge amounts of evidence that the crime was the work of a local gang. In a new book, writer and TV producer Edmund Levin digs up a wealth of archival material to introduce us to the heroes, villains, and ordinary people who either bolstered this crazy accusation or helped squash it. The book is called A Child of Christian Blood, and we are very pleased to have Edmund Levin here with us to talk about it. Edmund, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. As I said in the introduction, this is a fairly well-known case, and lots of books have been written about it. What led you to tackle the subject? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's pretty well known among a certain group of people, but is really not as well known as it should be. Um, There are a couple of books about it. But uh, I decided to to write the book, I I guess in a way it started with my grandmother, who grew up in Tsarist Russia around the turn of the 20th century. And she would uh, sit around, we would sit around the table and listen to her telling terrible stories about Tsarist Russia. And at the end end of one session, she said, and Mendel Bayless, as if that kind of summed up everything that was wrong with that time and place. And so uh, years later, when I was thinking of writing a book, I didn't know what the book would be, uh, that came back to me. And then I poked around and I saw that while it was kind of well known in the Russian history field, um, not that much had been written about it, a couple of books, a couple of articles. And I found that there was a wealth of archival material, as you pointed out, um, that was now available from the former uh, Soviet Union, from the former Soviet archives. So let's start at the beginning. What was the crime that launched this trial? The crime that launched the trial was that on um, uh, March 12th, 1911, a, a boy disappeared. Um, his name was, as you said, was Andrei Yushinsky. And uh, his body was found about eight days later on the desolate outskirts of, of Kiev in a cave. And his body was covered with about 50 stab wounds. And immediately, the um, Black Hundreds, the right-wing group of the time, raised the hue and cry, this crime was committed by the Jews. So the crime was the murder of this Christian boy. What can you tell us about this victim, about Andrei Yushinsky? Well, Andrei Yushinsky, I think, has been, in a way, as is often the case with notorious murder cases, the victim is kind of neglected. And I tried in the book to create a portrait of him because he was, in a way, a representative figure of the time as well. Uh, he was an uh, illegitimate child, was taunted all the time because he was Ill- illegitimate, and he had a very saintly aunt who paid for his education at a, at a religious school. He studied hard to get in there and was making something of himself at the time that he was killed. Uh, so that was a very sad and touching part of the story to me. And what about Mendel Bayless? Who, what can you tell us about him? Well, Mendel Bayless was kind of a classic, ordinary man trapped in extraordinary circumstances, uh, also, in a way, a very representative Jew of his time. He was a father of five. He was a brick factory clerk in Kiev, where it was hard to find work as a Jew because Jews had to get special permission to live there. Um, so he was a hardworking family man. 
Uh, he had served in the army for five years. Uh, so in a way, you could say he was a loyal czarist subject. And for being a loyal subject, he was dragged out of his home in the middle of the night uh, in July of 1911 and charged with this horrible crime. How old was he at the time? He was about 37. And Jews and uh, non-Jews were living uh, side by side in the town where Bayless was? Or what was the sort yes, of life he, like? Yes, he, he lived uh, side by side with Christians. I said he was one of the few Christians in uh, – few Jews, rather, in this neighborhood called Lukyanovka, uh, not a very well-off neighborhood. And everybody he knew pretty much was, was a Christian, and he had Christian friends. He was friends with the priest there, were you know, friendly with. Uh, and uh, the, all the workers uh, who he interacted with, almost all of them were, were, were Christians, and he generally had good relations with people. And according to one account, they called him uh, Nash Mendel, our Mendel uh, in Russian. Uh, they were very friendly towards him. Uh, and indeed, there's a scene in the book where uh, he, during the trial, that he returns to Lukyanovka when they survey the crime scene. And people are out in the streets cheering him, doffing their caps, saying, hello, Mendel. And it's a very, very moving scene, I think. So... The book does testify to the fact that Jews and Christians mingled. They were friendly with each other. Uh, Andrei Yushinsky, the victim, he had Jewish friends, uh, which was uh, you know, really interesting to me. What sort of evidence was there against Bayless when he was first accused? There really was nothing uh, other than uh, perjured testimony, forged testimony, bribed testimony. Uh, the main reason, really the only reason Mendel Bayless was charged was that the brick factory, the grounds of the brick factory, where he had his home and office, adjoined the area where the cave was, where Andrei Yushinsky was found. So how quickly did the accusation of ritual murder come into play in this story? Was that kind of thing, uh, accusing Jews of ritual murder, very common in the early 20th century in Russia? Well, uh, it wasn't that common, though. The uh, ritual murder myth was very widespread. There were a couple of trials, much less well-known. But what I found interesting was that you know people might think, oh, Tsarist Russia, horrible place, anti-Semitic. They wouldn't think twice before dragging a Jew out of his home and charging him with you know draining a child's blood. Uh, in fact, what I found interesting was how slowly the case came to be, how much hesitation there was. It took quite a few months for it to happen. Uh, the Tsarist regime was very worried, strangely, that bringing this charge would arouse the populace and create more problems. Because at this point in Tsarist Russia, it was a very turbulent place, obviously just a few years before the revolution. And the Tsarist regime knew that things weren't that good, that there, there had been a revolution in 1905 just a few years before. So they were wary of anything that would arouse the populace. Order, the preservation of order was the first priority. And that meant protecting the Jews. You know, the, the Tsarist government, contrary to some myths, were not out there fomenting pogroms all the time. They actually were trying to tamp down that kind of activity. So there was a contradiction. Uh, but eventually, it took a few months from March uh, 1911 till July and August when they finally took the plunge and decided to charge Mendel Bayles with this horrible crime. So this case on the outskirts of Kiev came to the attention of Tsar Nicholas II. Did that happen quickly? Why would that have been on his radar? Uh, well, Tsar Nicholas II did not like Jews. Um, that might seem a commonplace thing to say, but I think that he did not like them even more than his ministers did. His ministers were willing to make some concessions. There were many uh, laws that limited Jews' rights. His ministers were willing to alleviate them a little bit. Tsar Nicholas was absolutely unwilling to do so. It's hard to say when he became aware of it, but it was in the papers. Everybody knew about it. 
Uh, there are some signs in the archives that he was following the case. So the, the path was that some local anti-Semites in Kiev kind of pushed the case. Uh, then members of parliament, uh, right-wing members of parliament pushed the case. And then the uh, Justice Department, the Interior Ministry, decided to make the case their own. And that really is what distinguishes the Bayless case, is that you have a central government backing a ritual murder charge. There have been other trials, local affairs in Europe uh, and in Russia too. But this was the first case in, in modern times to be backed by a central government. Your book is full of a lot of uh, very vivid detail about the case and the many characters that were caught up in it. People like the local drunken lamplighter and his equally intoxicated wife, various investigators and scoundrels and, you know, these different ministers, government ministers and gang members. How did you find all this information? Well, I hope I have a lot of really wonderful details about these, I said, these colorful kind of Dostoevskian, Gagolian, that's a word, characters. Um, they come from, the, there's a, a trial record, a three-volume trial transcript, which is really reads like a crazy Russian novel. And then I looked through thousands and thousands of documents and picked out details and stories of these kind of compelling people. So you uh, read and speak Russian then? I do. I read and I read and speak it. Some of it was challenging to read because some of the documents were handwritten and I kind of had to learn. I had some help reading them and I also acquired some skill in reading them. Some of them were very hard to read. Were there any particular details that surprised you as you were going through all these records? You know, I, I think that uh, as far as details go, and generally speaking, the number of good people surprised me. You know, you look in the documents and you see many people saying, this is a crazy case. Bayless was not guilty. In fact, I don't think there's a single policeman who believed that he was guilty. Uh, and that, uh, the unanimity on that score kind of surprised me. And yet the case went forward. Yet the case went forward, which is still, I think, it's still mysterious as to why. When did the case begin to attract attention internationally? Well, the case began to attract attention uh, when Bayless was indicted. That was in 1912. Uh, and the anti uh, or the pro-Bayless movement got started in Europe in 1912. Many famous people rallied to his cause. You know, people like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Anatole France, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas Mann. They all signed petitions in his favor. Uh, famous scientists of the day held conferences showing that the crime could not have been one of ritual murder. So that's where it started. And then the movement uh, moved to America, really close to the trial in 1913. And what was the outcome of the trial? Well, the outcome of the trial was ambiguous. Bayless was found not guilty by a jury of 12 Russian peasants. And, uh, you know, there was a thought at the time that uh, the jury had been rigged, which is probably true, to put more uneducated people in the jury, people who would be susceptible to the prosecution, but they uh, found him uh, found him not guilty. At the same time, there was a separate question basically asking whether the crime fit the prosecution's description, essentially implying that it had the hallmarks of ritual murder. And to that, the jury said, yes, it did. That was interpreted as the jury endorsing the charge of ritual murder. So in a way, it was an ambiguous split verdict with both sides claiming victory. So when Bayless was released, was he a hero? Was he a folk hero? How was he received uh, after the verdict? And what did he do? Did he stick around in the Kiev area or did he leave? Um, well, Bayless, when Bayless left, he was a national and worldwide celebrity. Everybody knew who he was. Uh, and when he went, finally got home, there were lines of people for days who coming to shake his hand. 
they put up a sign in front of the house so people know where it is that said Bayless Station. <laughs> and the, 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 the tram operators would say, you know, Bayless Station. Uh, and he got very tired out, shaking people's hands. And uh, so in a way, the, the initial the welcome was, was very warm. Uh, he knew, however, that, it was a, that Russia was a dangerous place for him to be. He told a newspaper reporter, I'm going to stay here so that the Black Hundreds will know I'm not afraid. Eventually, after a few weeks, he realized that he just could not stay in Russia. It was just too dangerous. There were too many people who did not like him. So he left for Palestine, uh, spent some time there, and uh, then uh, eventually came to America, lived in Bronx, and uh, he uh, died here in 1934. Edmund, in the book, you identify a few clear heroes in the story and a few very clear villains. I wonder if you could introduce a couple of them to our listeners. Uh, sure. There are very vivid characters. Uh, one, of the, one of the heroes is a man, a detective named Nikolai Krasovsky. Uh, he was known uh, at sometimes as the Russia's Sherlock Holmes. And he tried to prove that Bayless was innocent. Uh, and for his troubles, the, uh, the government put him in jail for a while. He managed to get out by beating the rap. Um, and uh, he was a hero, certainly. Uh, Bayless' attorneys were heroes. Oscar Grusenberg, the most famous attorney, Jewish attorney of his time, was certainly a hero. Uh, and then as far as villains go, I mean, the villain of villains is a woman named Vera Chibriak. And she is really kind of the bizarre center of the case. Uh, she was the head of a criminal gang. As you said in the introduction, the, the authorities believe that a criminal gang was behind the murder of Andrei Yushinsky. She was the head of that criminal gang, responsible for many robberies. She was a very seductive woman. She was probably behind the murder. And she ended up being the star witness for the prosecution, uh, which is clearly a bizarre turn of events showing how the czarist regime was willing to do anything to convict this man. What about the blood libel today? Is this an accusation that we come upon? You know, the blood libel is still alive. There are still people who believe it. Um, thankfully, no trials. But, you know, if you go on the internet, you'll see it, it's quite current in the Middle East, especially. Uh, you still do come across it in Europe. A few years ago, there was a Hungarian politician, a member of a right-wing party that people are kind of worried about now. And he was talking about a blood libel case in the 1880s in, in Hungary, famous trial there. The people there were thankfully exonerated. But he said, you know, we still don't really know what happened back then. And that kind of shocked people that a member of parliament would say that. Beyond that, I think the blood libel is, is still important today because as – Anthony Julius is a historian and attorney. He wrote a great book about anti-Semitism. Uh, he called the blood libel the master libel against the Jews. In other words, it kind of underlies the idea of Jews as exploiters, as parasites, as metaphorically bloodsuckers. So even people who don't believe in that myth or think they are above superstition, I think it does underlie anti-Semitism today to, to a certain degree. And so I think it will be important as long as anti-Semitism exists. Edmund Levin, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Edmund Levin is the author of A Child of Christian Blood, Murder and Conspiracy in Tsarist Russia, The Bayless Blood Libel. It's just out from Shock and Books. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from you, our listeners, lately, and we really want to thank you for that. We want to ask you to take it one step further, though. Why not go to iTunes and post a review of Vox Tablet there? It is a really great way for us to get new listeners, and we are very grateful for all your help. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory. Thank you again for listening. Please join us again next time. 